Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, why Jews? Well, okay, most Jews are not farmers. And the holidays of Passover, Sukkot, and Shavuot are harvest holidays that harken back to a time when Jews, like most people, were farmers. And on those holidays, they brought offerings from their fields to the temple in Jerusalem. But Jews as professional farmers did not endure in fact or as a stereotype. Instead, Jews moved into more high-skill fields. They were moneylenders, traders, doctors, lawyers. Why? What happened centuries ago that caused most of the world's Jewry to move from tilling fields to work that required them to read and write? That's one of several big questions that a pair of economists, Maristella Bodicini of Bocconi University in Milan and Tzvi Eckstein, the dean of the School of Economics at ICD Herzliya in Israel, set out to answer in their award-winning book, The Chosen Few. What they found is surprising and casts doubt on several canards about Jews. Today on Vox Tablet, we're speaking with Maristella Bodicini. She's in her office in Milan about the study and about why it's significant. Maristella Bodicini, welcome to Vox Tablet. Hi, Sarah. I'm very pleased to be on Vox Tablet. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, in your preface in the book, you say that this whole research project began with a conversation between you and Professor Eckstein in a cafeteria at Boston University. I'd love it if you can take us back to that conversation. What were you eating? <laughs> oh, that's a very good question. Uh, so, you know, was the standard uh, cafeteria type of food that you can find in any university in the U.S. or <laughs> in Europe, as a matter of fact. So certainly not a three-star Michelin type of restaurant, but the cafeteria was very conducive to talk about a variety of topics talking about academic stuff, uh, talking about soccer, or I should say baseball, probably more appropriately. And uh, so it was a great way to start an academic conversation like the one we did, Zvi and me, that eventually led to working together and then eventually writing the book. So what? how did this conversation get started? How did you both come to uh, realize that there was a question here that you wanted to answer? Sure. So that I remember very, very well, unlike uh, the, the food uh, question. Um, Zvi knew that in one chapter of my doctoral dissertation at Northwestern University, where I got my PhD in economics, uh, in one chapter I was studying uh, uh, Jewish bankers in medieval Tuscany, because my other research projects are in general on medieval Tuscany, so he was curious to know a little bit more. So he said, let's go to lunch and talk about economic history. So we said, okay, let's go to lunch. And then we started uh, uh, lunch and Zvi asked, so why do you think uh, uh, Jews today are mostly in uh, high-skill uh, uh, urban type of jobs? And back then I remember saying, well, Zvi, everybody knows there were many restrictions, uh, prohibitions, uh, and that's... Uh, the story that I know and many other people know. And he says, uh, yeah, but are we really sure? And then I, back then I said, well, what do you mean really sure? If we want to find out more, we have to study more and be serious scholar. So that's how it started, basically. And the subsequent three years, we didn't write anything. We just read, 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 read the tons of books and papers that have been written on the topic, trying to absorb the huge amount of literature that has been written on the topic. And then 
uh, we tried to look at these historical facts, at this uh, huge literature, with the eyes of an economist. So we sat down and we said, okay, we have a collection of historical facts here that uh, pertain to the Jews. And some of them are quite striking and amazing. Now, how an economist would uh, consider these facts and what kind of explanation would try to provide for these facts? And I think there is an image that I like very much, and it's uh, the microscope and the telescope. What I mean is the following. Historians, they do an amazing job in describing in even the smallest detail the historical uh, facts to the, related to the Jews, let's say, in Mesopotamia in the 8th century or in France in the 12th century or in other parts of the world in other periods. And using a microscope, they can provide even the smallest, tiniest details. And this is very important to know details. Then the economists come with what I call a telescope, look at the same myriads of historical facts, and try to provide a theory. So that's the kind of two tools, two instruments that we try to use uh, in uh, writing our book. Let me ask you a question, uh, stepping back a moment. You said that when you first started having this conversation and uh, Professor Eckstein asked you, why do you think there are so many Jews in the medieval period who are bankers? You mentioned restrictions. Talk about that a little bit. What were some of the theories that people have used to understand why Jews were not in agricultural work but in professional work? Absolutely. I think that uh, the most uh, well-known and common explanation uh, goes as follows. The Jews uh, were not farmers, uh, certainly not in the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, because they could not own land, and hence, if you cannot own land, you cannot be a farmer. Second, the Catholic Church had bans on Christians lending money at interest, and hence, this job was left, basically, to the Jews. And third, uh, the crafts uh, and trade guilds in medieval Europe excluded non-guilds members from engaging in crafts, trade, and so on. So the only profession that was left for the Jews was banking. Now, we knew as well these uh, stories, these theories, I should say, when we started our project. But then we started to be skeptical and doubtful, and we tried to see and assess and look more carefully whether this explanation based on restrictions actually held true. And digging and digging through the vast amount of literature that I mentioned at the beginning we read, we actually, tried, we actually saw that these restrictions didn't exist. Meaning, restrictions came later, but they cannot be the explanation for the initial specialization of the Jews uh, in crafts, trade, uh, and banking. So, but of course, when you, if you are a serious scholar, it's not enough to criticize someone else's explanation, you try to provide your own explanation. Before we get to your explanation, I just want to go back for a moment. I wasn't clear on the uh, the theory that pertained to the Catholic Church. Can you explain that a little bit better? Yes, because during the Middle Ages, uh, the Catholic Church became concerned that lending at interest was impoverishing people. And hence, uh, the Catholic doctrine prohibited Christians from lending money at interest. So uh. according to some historians, if Christians cannot lend money at interest, someone else has to do it. And the someone else uh, was the Jews. The problem with this explanation is twofold. Number one, 
Despite the Catholic ban on lending money at interest, many Christians still lend at interest because, you know, one matter is to prohibit something by law, the other is what the reality, what practically people do. And we have a lot of evidence from historical sources that Christians still lend money at interest despite the church ban. But assuming for a moment that this ban actually was very strictly enforced, the problem with the explanation regarding the specialization of the Jews in banking because of this ban of the Catholic Church is totally wrong for the timing. Let me explain. We see from the historical sources that the Jews in medieval Europe, mainly in France, in Germany, and also England, were already practicing money lending very successfully and banking well before the Catholic Church uh, makes uh, uh, lending at interest by Christian prohibited, which happened roughly in the 12th, 13th century, okay? The Jews were already specialized in money lending in these countries at least a century earlier, which means what? That the ban cannot be the explanation for the specialization of the Jews uh, and their prominence uh, in uh, in banking. And the, the other uh, explanation that's been very uh, well accepted, that there was a, uh, that it was illegal for Jews to own land, that you also disproved, those restrictions on Jewish oh, land owning. The, absolutely. No, you're totally right, Sarah. And this one, we actually disagree even more strongly and for the following reason in the 15th century that our book uh, uh, studies uh, namely from the first century uh, to the 1492 basically uh, we cannot find evidence of laws prohibiting Jews uh, from owning land and this is even more striking not only in medieval Europe because the Jews could own land and did own land simply they didn't work the land they didn't want to be farmers but they could own land in principle but um, the, this uh, fact is even more striking in the muslim uh, period uh, in the muslim empire a few centuries earlier when the transition from farming into craft trade and banking actually occurred between the eight And the 12th century, that's the crucial period when the Jews abandon agriculture and enter in huge numbers in crafts, trade, and banking. This is exactly the time when the Jews, if they wanted, they owned land. So that's why we're saying this explanation based on prohibition on owning land is completely, totally wrong because there were no restrictions, no prohibitions on Jews owning land, especially at the time, 8th to 10th century, in the Muslim empire where Almost 80% of the Jews were living at that time. So that's why we are saying we understand that is a popular explanation. The problem is once you start digging carefully, once you start reading carefully the works of wonderful historians who devoted their entire lives reading primary sources and documents, this explanation based on land uh, ownership prohibition for the Jews doesn't hold at all. So then... Maristella, what is the theory that you and Tzvi Eckstein came up with? What explains the transition of Jews from farmers to uh, moneylenders? Yes, okay. So let me say first one very quickly an important thing. 2,000 years ago, the Jews are identical in terms of occupational structure to anybody else, okay? So 2,000 years ago, when our book starts, the Jews are exactly mostly farmers like everybody else. That's important to, uh, uh, to say, okay? Then something happened, and as I was saying before, between the 8th and the 10th century, 
in the Muslim empire, where most of the Jews were living at the time, especially Mesopotamia, they leave agriculture and they enter in huge numbers in this urban high-skill income occupation. So why? Let's take a detour for a second and forget about economics for a moment and let's move to religion. So 2,000 years ago, everybody, this is well known, that's not our personal discovery in uh, this book, is well known by anybody who knows uh, Judaism. Judaism underwent a profound, uh, deep transformation uh, in the following sense. Uh, until 70, that is until the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem, Judaism had two pillars, the second temple in Jerusalem, where sacrifices were made, and then the Torah uh, that every Jewish uh, male individual was supposed to read. The destruction of the temple destroys one of the two pillars, namely the temple, permanently. Now, Judaism from then on becomes identified with reading and, more important, studying the Torah. The reading and the study was not required only for adults, but even more revolutionary for the period and more surprising for kids, children, sons, more precisely. Okay? So we have a religious uh, uh, order that says that Jewish fathers should send uh, their sons, uh, their male children, from the age of six or, uh, or seven to the school or the synagogue to read and to learn the Torah. Now again, someone can say what this has to do with becoming uh, merchants, bankers, doctors, centuries later. Think about for a second. 2,000 years ago, everybody, including the Jews, were illiterate. You don't earn more if you are literate. So the decision by the religious readers to ask their people to become literate, to read the Torah and to study the Torah, from an economic point of view, made no sense. It was a sacrifice. These are poor farmers who has to send a kid to school or, uh, or the synagogue to learn and to study in a world that doesn't reward being literate or educated. However, why this was a complete uh, a sort of genius idea? Why? Once you learn to read the Torah, you can read basically any other book any other letter, any other contract written in the same language, namely Hebrew or Aramaic, and then it's easier to learn other languages. So we have that the Jews, uh, is not that they acquired only what we call religious literacy, that is the ability to read a religious text, but automatically they became literate to cool, because now you can read any other book. Any other letter, as I was mentioning before. So in a world where every, almost everybody was illiterate, the Jews suddenly, they are literate, which for that time was a huge comparative advantage. However, as I said, 2,000 years ago, the world is mainly agrarian. Yeah, you are a literate farmer, doesn't bring you much money. But what happens a few centuries later? Mohammed uh, established Islam, his successor built one of the largest empire in history, the Muslim empire, stretching from Spain almost to India, with one language, one set of law, cities built from scratch, huge urban centers, commerce incredibly growing, and now comes the connection with everything that I said before. The Jews 
were the only one, basically, with this huge advantage in literacy and were the first uh, to abandon agriculture and farming and move uh, into the cities that the Muslim rurals have built uh, and start uh, engaging in crafts first, then in trade, banking, medicine, all the kind of most skilled urban occupation you can think of. So the reason, to sum up, is they had a comparative advantage in education and literacy thanks to this change in their religion a few centuries earlier that nobody basically had at that time. Now, the title of the book is The Chosen Few, and one of the uh, factors that you confront in your book is that at the same time that this was happening, that the Jews were becoming more literate and moving to urban areas, they also experienced a tremendous drop in their numbers. I mean, the population fell. Absolutely. Why? Yes, exactly. In fact, the title, The Chosen Few, has exactly two words, okay? Chosen refers exactly to the fact that they become literate, educated, and then specialized in this urban occupation. The second word, few, refers exactly to the demographic trends that characterize Jewish history in these 15 centuries. The most dramatic decline happens exactly between the first and the sixth centuries, where the Jewish population um, mainly concentrated in Eretz Israel, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Syria, Turkey, and Southern Europe. These were the main locations in the first century. So Jewish population amounted to roughly, let's say, 5 million Jews. Six centuries later, they were at most a million and a half. So what happened? Uh, we know that there were wars and massacres, uh, wars between the Jews and the Roman Empire. There were epidemics, huge epidemics, like the Justinian plague in the 6th century. There were other natural causes that uh, determine a drop uh, in the total population and, of course, also in the Jewish population. But the problem is these factors cannot explain the whole decline from 5.5 million roughly to 1.5 million. So the other factor that contributed to this decline was conversions. Mm -hmm. Conversions out of Judaism into other religions, mainly Christianity. Let me explain how this uh, happened. Uh, Christianity emerged uh, as one of the religious groups uh, within Judaism. And if you think about uh, the core tenets of Christianity are very similar to the one in Judaism. But Christianity kind of took out some requirements that Jews were supposed to uh, perform in order to be considered part of the Jewish group, uh, including the requirement to send the kids uh, to school by the age of six or seven to learn the Torah. And uh, think about again, 2,000 years ago, the, rural, the world is rural. Here you have a religion that forces you to invest in your kids' education, which is costly, is expensive, is a burden with few returns. And then there is another religion, very similar to the first one, which doesn't impose you this. It's not kind of hard to understand that probably a percentage of Jews preferred to change religion from Judaism into Christianity because they probably felt that more or less it was basically the same religion, but with 
fewer requirements, including the very expensive one related to educating the children. So part of the, co of the decline of the Jewish population between the first and the sixth century was due to conversions. Voluntary conversions, not forced conversions. And let me emphasize, we are not claiming nowhere in the book that the entire decline was due to conversions because uh, everybody knows there were wars at these times, there were massacres, there were epidemics. So all these factors contributed to the decline of the Jewish population. What we claim in the book is that still there is a percentage that cannot be explained by this factor and the only other explanation is conversions. So does discrimination play any part in the development of Jews as this chosen few? That is to say, a small Jewish urban professional class? So it depends uh, what you mean uh, by discrimination, okay? Let me give you an example. Taxation, okay? Uh, suppose that uh, in some periods, in some locations, Jews uh, or other religious uh, ethnic minorities were, in quote, discriminated because, for example, they had to pay higher taxes. Uh, this actually happened. I give you an easy example. In the Muslim empire that I mentioned before, Jews, exactly like Christians and other religious minorities, were called dimmis. They were protected minorities, which meant the Muslim leaders let them practice their religion as long as the Jews and other religious minorities paid a poll tax. This was a tax levied on each uh, head uh, of the family. Okay? So is this discrimination? Yes, of course it is. The point is this tax uh, was raised on all religious minorities, not just on the Jews. So yes, it was discrimination, but it was not discrimination targeted especially against the Jews. So it cannot be an explanation from their transition from farmers into merchants. Okay? Um, discrimination can come in other ways. For example, you can ask uh, uh, members of religious or ethnic minorities to wear special kind of clothes, uh, to live uh, in a uh, uh, special part of the cities. These certainly happen, we know very well, for example, in medieval uh, Europe. But the point is, what has this to do with an occupational transformation that occurred centuries earlier. So all I'm saying is that it's true that in medieval Europe, Jews experienced episodes of discrimination. But the problem is the Jews in Europe were already specialized in crafts, trade, banking, well before this discrimination. So the discriminations cannot be an explanation for their occupational explanation. The Jews in medieval Europe came in two ways either from the Byzantine Empire, through Italy, basically, or from Northern Africa. When they arrived, they were not farmers. And then suddenly, the next day, they become traders or bankers because of discrimination. They come to medieval Europe already as successful merchants and traders, already as successful doctors, uh, uh, skilled doctors, uh, bankers, and so on. And so that's why we are saying the discrimination or uh, prohibition story cannot explain their occupational structure because they were already specialized in these occupations. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I understand you and Professor Eckstein are at work on a sequel to this book called The Chosen Many. And yes, you're, yes, sir. Yeah, you're looking in that book at the socioeconomic status of the Jews from the period of the expulsion uh, in Spain to the present. What specifically are you trying to answer in that book? Wow, that's a big question. Actually, Zvi is coming tomorrow here in Milan, and we have started reading in the past uh, months, uh, again, a huge amount of books and literature that has been written on Jewish history after 1500. There are several questions we try to answer. I'll throw a couple of them, okay? Because there are so many that, uh, you know, we cannot uh, say all of them uh, <laughs> in the interview. So one interesting question is the following. Take a picture of the Jews in 1492, when our first book stops, ends, where there were basically roughly one million Jews in the world, okay? Half a million Sephardim and half a million Ashkenazim, okay? These are kind of very broad distinction, uh, but just to give a kind of simple picture. Then, uh, four and a half uh, centuries later, so at the beginning of the 20th centuries, the Jews in the world are now 16 million, 16.5 to be precise. Two million are Sephardim, and 14 million are Ashkenazim. So the first puzzle is to explain how come that in 1492 there are almost roughly the same number of Sephardim and Ashkenazim, and four and a half centuries later, the Ashkenazim, in demographic terms, have grown so much uh, more. Especially because, as everybody knows, this growth happened mainly in Eastern Europe and sometimes in some places and periods where exactly the economic uh, conditions were not exactly great okay, or the political situation was not exactly uh, peaceful. And yet we have this spectacular demographic growth. So that's one big puzzle to answer. Another interesting puzzle we know that there, is, uh, there was sorry, a large migration of Jews uh, to the United States. We also know that uh, many of them came very poor from the shtetl. And then in a matter of one generation at most two, we again see them very successful in business. Uh, so the question is why? Why you come poor like many other immigrants, but then in a matter of one, two generations, Again, you live in cities, you are engaged in these high-skill, high-income jobs. And the third puzzle is uh, among the many that characterize the 500 years that we are now planning to study is during the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century, the Jews uh, were not uh, the major inventors, okay? So if one look at the Industrial Revolution, the great inventors and so on, we don't see many Jews actually. Uh, in the subsequent stages of technological change and scientific progress, the Jews actually became among the major inventors, uh, intellectuals, scientists, and so on. So how come? I hope that these three, we call them puzzles, more humbly we can call them questions, are some of the many that we plan to address in our second journey of learning. It sounds fascinating. I look forward to it. I will send you a copy. <laughs> Maristella Bodicini, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you today.
Amaris Della Botticini is the author with Zvi Eckstein of The Chosen Few, How Education Shaped Jewish History, 70 to 1492. The book is out from Princeton University Press. You can get your hands on the paperback edition this fall. If this podcast, Vox Tablet, is something you listen to every week, I want to make sure that you know that you can get a free subscription to it. You sign up for Vox Tablet on iTunes, and that way you can make sure that you never, ever miss an episode. Also, if you're a podcast fan, we'd love it if you'd write a review of our podcast on iTunes. That review will help us get more listeners, and we definitely want more listeners. Thanks for your help in this. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Thank you so very much for listening.